Infrastructure software can be a great business. An infrastructure software company sells core technology to a large enterprise, such as a bank or an insurance company. This software has near zero marginal cost, and it generates a large annuity for the infrastructure software company. Once a bank has purchased your infrastructure software, the bank is likely to renew every year and never remove the software. Selling infrastructure software is like selling concrete or steel, except the software is cheaper to produce, it's easier to distribute, and it generates an annuity rather than being a one-time sale. The fundamental economics of enterprise infrastructure software are extremely appealing, and every year more businesses enter the space but few businesses ever leave. If you're starting an infrastructure software company today, you can expect a complex battle for market share. There's no easy trick to get your software into the hands of your target customer. Martin Casado studied computer science at Stanford before founding NYSERA, a company that pioneered software-defined networking and virtualization technology. In 2012, NYSERA sold to VMware for $1.26 billion. Martin now works as a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Martin writes about the modern strategies of building a successful infrastructure software company. He describes two methods of selling into an enterprise, bottoms-up and top-down. In a bottoms-up model, engineers within an enterprise start using your product to solve a well-defined problem such as API management. As more and more employees within the organization start to use your product, you can begin to engage this enterprise about becoming a paying customer for your product. Since the enterprise is already using your product, the sales conversation is much easier. In the top-down model, you engage the CIO or the CEO or the CTO directly, and you try to convince them that your product is worth paying for. When the senior leadership of a bank buys into your product idea, you can count on that senior leadership to convince their developers to use your product within the enterprise, such as a bank. It is a rare occurrence that your infrastructure software company will be able to fit cleanly into either of these models, bottoms-up or top-down. More often, there will be some bottoms-up usage and some top-down buy-in for your product, but you will have to evangelize the product on all fronts, you will have to convince both the engineers and the senior leadership. Your infrastructure software product probably won't speak for itself. You will have to develop expertise in sales, marketing, and consultancy. And in many cases, you might end up in an unending chasm. The unending chasm describes a mode in which an infrastructure software company must function as both a product company and a consultancy. Your consultancy is necessary to integrate your product into the enterprise and ensure that your software actually gets used, but it reduces the appealing economics of a pure software company with zero marginal costs. The unending chasm does not prevent you from being successful. Companies who have had very successful IPOs remain in the unending chasm today, but it's useful to know whether you are heading for an unending chasm or if you're already in one. Martin Casado joins the show today for a discussion of product development, software engineering, and go-to-market strategy. To find all 900 of our episodes, including past episodes with A16Z partners, you can check out the Software Engineering Daily app in the iOS and Android app stores. Whether or not you are a software engineer, we have lots of content about technology and business and culture and investing. 
In our app, you can also become a paid subscriber. You can get ad-free episodes if you don't like the ads. And you can have conversations with other members of the Software Engineering Daily community. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Martin Casado, you are a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. Your company, Nicira, was focused on making networks more programmable. How does network programmability today differ from when you started Nicira? The story actually goes back a little bit before Nicira. So like um, a quick thumbnail sketch, I actually worked for the intelligence community. And this is like 2001 to 2003. And if you remember back at that time, like, you know, cyber was getting pretty heavy. We were doing some pretty significant engagements. This is like post 9-11 type things. And, you know, we were pushing compute into environments that they kind of weren't created for, right? We're pushing compute into like, you know, nation state type attacks. I was in the intelligence community. And at the time, what was really surprising was, you know, with compute, of course, you could program it to do what you want. Actually, SC Linux, for those that remember, came out of the NSA, right? And so you could go into the OS, you could change the OS in ways that actually mattered depending on the threat environment. But networking and networking gear just wasn't built that way. I mean, networks were built in an era where we just wanted organic growth of the internet to cover the globe. And there was no way to really change the way you wanted it to work for things like, let's say, large data centers or mobility or um, security. So when I peeled out of the intelligence community and I went to Stanford, that was kind of the focus of the research, which is like, can we change the internet architecture or the networking architecture in a way that it's more programmable? If you kind of zoom till now, which was your original question, I actually think the most interesting thing and what we kind of got wrong and then later got right was the network these days really is just plumbing. It just connects compute elements, really. And there's no need to really program that. The functionality that you want to program actually has been consumed into the endpoint. So if you think about, for example, a data center, right? Instead of actually trying to do fancy stuff in the network, like, say, load balancing or security policies or whatever, it's now consumed into either the hypervisor or something like a service mesh with Envoy. And so I think that the ultimate answer was not, let's make routers and switches programmable. I think the ultimate answer is like, why don't we just pull this functionality into an infrastructure layer that's in software and running on x86 and use that instead? And I think that has become the standard way of actually doing network working now is actually in software at the edge. When you were at Nicera, there were several different business models that you iterated through. What did you learn from that experience of business model iteration? <laughs> yeah. So so at Nicera, we were at the cusp of going from basically on-prem deployment where people would pay for perpetual license to more service-like, cloud-like where people would pay for recurring. You know, I made all of the mistakes a naive technical person makes in enterprise. You know, early on, I assumed, oh, wouldn't it be great if we just built a product and have somebody else carry it? So early on, for example, we had Citrix OEM, one of our products, which, you know, never really worked out. We tried to partner with everyone. We had early partners like Google, NEC, you know, a lot of the early clouds. We actually thought, well, there's a partnership and we can get value from that. And then later on, we realized that, listen, you know, this stuff is complicated. The best thing for us to do is to just sell it directly ourselves. I, you know, if I couldn't sell it, nobody could sell it. And so we ended up basically in a direct sale model of a product. And that was the business model that stuck. And it probably took us two years to figure that out. And so the landscape was shifting. And I think it's worth talking about that going forward. But as far as a business model, I think mostly they were just early mistakes where honestly, if I would have listened to Ben Horowitz, who was on my board, I wouldn't have made them. And we should have just started that way. How do those lessons apply to 2018 enterprise software sales? 
they partially apply. So I here is what I think is the most difficult question to answer as a founder. And that is, let's say things aren't working. Is it because you're not executing correctly? Or is it because you don't have product market fit? I mean, that single question, I think, is the hardest question for founders to answer. Now, if the business is working well, like, great, <laughs> things are fine. But so often you start a company and you get these small successes and it's just not working how you would want. And the temptation, of course, is to look internally and like, what am I doing wrong? Or what is the team doing wrong? Or what is my sales team doing wrong? But it very well just could be that the market hasn't arrived or you don't have product market fit. And so... I think the trick is, if you're a founder, is to execute in a way that you can actually answer that question. And that's the lesson that I learned going through this. And so, for example, I believe today, if the founder, the visionary, the person that understands the competitive environment, understands the market, understands the problem space, if that person can't sell it, I don't think anybody can. Right. So the problem of trying to take something and having like a third party sell it or like do an own relationship, the problem is not that those things almost never work, which they don't. They almost never work. The problem is more that if they're not working, you don't know what the problem is. You don't know if it's it's because like the partner isn't doing their work or the market isn't ready. So I would say from my lessons, I would say today for those that are in the same situation as I was, which is it is a direct sale. It's not a bottoms up thing. And we should talk about that. You know, and you're having a hard time, you try and sell it as the founders, the founding team, maybe you have a salesperson that understands like procurement. And only until you're able to get traction yourself, should you think about expanding, for example, sales capacity by hiring more salespeople? And if people that work for you, that you train, that you comp, that are incented 100% of their time cannot sell it, fix that problem before doing something more broadly. And then eventually, when all of those are working, you can think about engaging uh, more broadly. Now, that is for complex products which require a direct sale. A lot of the learnings that I had on that do not actually apply to a broader shift that's happening today, which is, you know, you're seeing so much more kind of cloud-based, bottoms up adoption. And that, you know, I'm actually learning uh, being on a number of boards and watching it and, and just being a student of that movement. Eventually, you were acquired by VMware. Acquisitions are complicated. What advice would you give to 2012 Martin Casado going through the acquisition? You know, the best piece of advice I got during that, and I'm just glad it happened, and I think that was the advice I needed to hear. It came from Diane Green. So for those of for those that don't know, Diane Green was the founder of VMware and the CEO of VMware. And she sold it to EMC. Her and Mendel Rosenbaum sold it to EMC. And then, you know, she exited the company. And uh, so she was an early investor in Nasira. And when I was talking, you know, we were talking about, should we sell? Who should we sell to? She gave me a call and it was a very short conversation. She said, okay, Martina, if you decide to sell, and I don't know if it's the right thing to do, one piece of advice. And that one piece of advice is don't give up your sales team. And the reason is, is VMware is very good at selling to people that run servers. And they're very good at selling to compute. But those don't know how to sell to networking and security, which you're focused on. So no matter what happens as far as the deal goes, like, you know, make sure that you retain that. And so not knowing anything and like <laughs> being thrust in this situation, I actually held on to that really tightly. And in retrospect, I think it was one of the best decisions we made and certainly VMware made. Going back to the previous conversation that we just had, it's very hard for somebody in a new area, in a category creating area to sell what you've done especially if they have no idea. So in the case of VMware, it would have been the core sales team. Could they sell it or not? So we maintained our sales team for years. And because of that, we we're able to build a significant business. And now, you know, any sales rep within VMware is able to sell these types of things. But I think that was the single most important piece of advice. And it's one I would pass on to anybody in that situation. When you were acquired around that time, 
AWS was very early. And since that time, AWS has become quite a dominant force. Cloud computing has been just growing and growing. It's been become really important. Did you predict that market shift that was going to happen or did it surprise you? The speed on which it happened was what was so surprising to all of us. Like, you know, everybody understood the model and everybody understood the disruption. What I could never have predicted is in, listen, when I started selling networking software, so it's basically networking software. Instead of selling you a box, I'd sell you software you'd run in your hypervisor and I'd do networking. That's basically what our product was. When I first started selling that, pretty much everybody wanted to buy it using a perpetual license as a piece of downloadable, installable software. You know, and this is, even this is when we were acquired by VMware in 2012, but three years in, almost everybody wanted this as a service or as a license. And so for me, the biggest impact of things like cloud have been these follow-on effects, like how people assume they're going to consume software, how they assume they're going to pay for it. Not necessarily that it's on-prem versus on-prem. That was, you know, even today, that's still not nearly as big as a shift as these other shifts. And so it surprised me how fast it happened, but that, that change is not that everything went up into AWS is running in AWS. It's the perception of how you consume software and pay for it was, was the shocking thing. And I think, honestly, the entire industry today is dealing with <laughs> with that shift and still hasn't figured out from investors to founders to customers. In the regard of founders, the clouds are taking a ton of the opportunity. What are the opportunities that are left for infrastructure startups? So I have two views on this. So in one view is the clouds are the new HPs, Cisco's, IBM's, and Dell. And it's just infrastructure. It's compute. They'll do the most commoditized thing. And that's always been the case. But instead of like shipping you a box with the software on it, you know, it's up in the cloud. And in that case, I'd say, listen, there's tons of infrastructure to be built. I sit on the boards of many companies building great infrastructure. So keep building great things, horizontal plays, enabling the ecosystem where they're not. And there's a lot of value to be had. I mean, there's a lot of successful examples of companies building core infrastructure just recently. Think Elasticsearch, think Confluent, think Databricks, um, think Kong. I mean, these companies have built real value. These are core infrastructure components in the cloud era. And, you know, they even host on the cloud and they treat the clouds basically as core infrastructure. So that's one view. And I believe mostly that view. The other view is Yes, they are like the old infrastructure players, yet they have this advantage that the old infrastructure players don't, which is they are such large points of aggregation, they can see everything that's going on, and therefore they can see into the future. And if you have an incumbent competitor that can see into the future, they're much more dangerous than the old ones, which couldn't really see in the future. And by that, I mean, they can look at everything like like AWS. Amazon can look at anything running on AWS. And if something looks like it's doing well, there's no reason they can't replicate it. And replicating that, it, especially in the world of open source, is simply just copying bits as opposed to having to rewrite it or in the traditional model, then build out a sales force and do all the go-to-market stuff around it, which is easily as hard as engineering often in, in new areas. In this case, they just need to replicate it a startup is already doing all the market maturation stuff and then they offer it for free, which is a much more dangerous situation. And so I think there's truth to both stories. The first one that they're just infrastructure and they're focused on the, you know, the 80% use case and not the new areas. But also I think they can respond to startups in ways that the old incumbents could not. And I think startups need to be very aware of that and have that part of their strategy to make sure that they, they stay protected or can uh, move when these things happen. If you were operating a large established bank today, what would your cloud native strategy be? You know, the interesting thing about the bank, so I've got a pretty specific answer to this. So the interesting thing about the banks is if you walk into any data center, there are museums of computer science past. 
I mean, I remember one that we worked with. I mean, they had old SGI boxes, old sun boxes. I mean, like, and I think here's what I think is the wrong thing to do. I think the wrong thing to do is to assume there is an operating model that covers all of those things, right? And I think this is the biggest misstep I've seen, you know, when I was running, for example, a large business unit, we dealt with these digital transformations all the time. They say, oh, the cloud is amazing. I'm going to do something in the cloud or I'm going to do something cloud native, whether it's on-prem or off-prem, doesn't matter. But the mistake was, and that model... I'm going to find some thin layer of software, some orchestration system to apply to everything I have. So now all of my crufty old steaming piles of 70s technology is going to be like easy to provision, etc. They all think that not, that, I mean, actually, you know, later they don't think that as much, but early on, everybody wants to do that. They want to have like that one band-aid layer. So my recommendation is, you know, is do adopt the most recent technology. And cloud is, to me, independent, whether it's on-prem or off-prem. Cloud is whether you consume it as a service, the technologies that you use, the expectations around those technologies. You know, make that independent decision, but keep that decision in a silo. And things that are born into that, go ahead and deploy into that. But those that are not, that's okay. It's okay to have two or three operating models. It's much, much easier than having a lowest common denominator operating model that basically makes the cloud operate like your, you know, 1970s infrastructure. And if you're laying out rules for the developers in your bank to procure software, you don't want them to have carte blanche to buy way too much software, but you don't want them to feel restrained. What procurement policies do you put in place for your engineers? I think I would worry more about like tool explosion and loss of development process than actual procurement. So I think the procurement rules are pretty good, which is more and more developers get discretionary spend. Sometimes it's individual developers. Sometimes it's their VPs of engineering or directors. And they can use that budget up to a, st- a certain point. And then after that, you have to go through procurement. There's a number of reasons why a procurement office makes sense. Number one, like they're professional negotiators. But more importantly, they understand everything that's being bought from a certain vendor. And so they can get maximum leverage on that. So for example, if I'm going to get you know app dynamics from Cisco, I'm also spending $10 million on a VoIP system. Maybe I can get a discount on that, you know, and a package on that or so forth. So procurement makes sense from that standpoint. Also, they know everything that's being used site-wide. So you can get, again, like these discounts, right? I mean, I just think from a sales efficiency, procurement makes sense. So I think discretionary um, spending to some degree down to developers is perfect. I actually love this bottoms up organic consumption. Having procurement still makes a lot of sense. But what I do worry about is like, you know, it's fine you use whatever editor you use. I literally like, if you ever see me do a tweet storm or anything, I'm still using Vim. I'm like, I literally, like, <laughs> I still like use like Vim plugins for email. Like I browse using like Vim key bindings. I'm just like a Vim person. Like that's fine. But, you know, for everybody to use their own workflow and their own tool chain, I think it's just disruptive to the engineering process. Okay. And let's say the CIO of your bank comes into your office and says, okay, I'm going to an expo conference next week what are the kinds of companies I should go and evaluate and how should I make decisions around which of those companies to take seriously and to engage in a sales process? This is where you're actually pointing out, this is actually, you're pointing out, I think, a piece where things are a little bit upside down, which is ultimately I find that the actual practitioners are the ones, the only ones that can determine whether something is useful and how it integrates and the practical implications. And often the decision power rests high above that. And this can go wrong in so many ways. Like, you know, the people on the ground know something will be disruptive. 
someone high up, you know, it, uh, say a CIO has their imagination captured and then, you know, a lot of problems could be avoided if they, you know, just would have listened. But like, because the discussions were so independent, it could be problematic. On the other hand, sometimes it is good because like, you know, especially us as we're, we're so much closer to the code or what we're trying to do, sometimes you have to be overridden by somebody that's, you know, like less risk averse and has a broader view. And, and this is all to be saying that like, I think it's very hard for us a CIO to buy themselves in an expo, <laughs> you know, like, you know, get a sense of, of what's going to really work in an organ list. I mean, they really understand their organization, you know, really seriously. I, I these days would actually promote much more of a bottoms up approach, which is like, let, you know, let the engineers go to the expo and let the directors go to the expo and let the project managers and the product leaders go to the expo. Let them come back and let them have kind of ideas of what's disruptive or non-disruptive and then use that internally as a filtration function from that. And I'm not sure if that's the, the, the heart of the question that you're asking, but I, I do think that, you know, having sold, you know, all the way up and down the stack, you know, down to the developer, all the way up to the CIO, I do think that the mismatch happens when, you know, the, those that have to implement aren't, aren't in the loop. So should the CIO's role be more of a curator of software that is bottoms up at a company that is naturally making its way through a company rather than a selector of top-down pieces of software? I think it's almost, I would, I would almost have a barbell view of this. On one side of the barbell, the CIO provides the environment where teams can choose the back test technology for them and implement. And it's more of a meta role. So it's not a technology selection role. It's not even really a technology role. It's kind of a meta role for infrastructure for the use and deployment of technology within the regulations and policies of the organization, which I always find CIOs to be much more about regulations and policies and information and much, much less about the actual kind of nuts and bolts. The other end of the barbell is organizations get stuck in local optima, right? I mean, one of the classic examples of this, um, this is what I used to deal with all the time is like, there was a certain way of doing networking, for example, and all the practitioners listen, like they would have, they were, that's all they did was, you know, they learned a certain CLI and a certain way of doing networking. They've got credentials based on that. Like, and it was very difficult for them to see how you can do it something else because they're stuck in that local optima and they know all the reasons why something else wouldn't work. So for really dramatic, drastic change, I think you need someone like a CIO to do that. So I think for the most part, you set the infrastructure for organic kind of bottoms up. And then on the other side, I think that if you need to do something so dramatic that it requires basically top-down pressure, the CIO comes in. I think anything in between tends to have some sort of dissonance between the, the CIO role and the actual people that know what they're doing. There are some companies that are selling larger solutions with larger contracts into an enterprise, something like a Red Hat or Mesosphere. And then there are companies that are selling more point solutions like a Kong or a HashiCorp selling sets of tools. How do the strategies for go-to-market differ between these types of companies? Yeah, no, that's a great question. More and more, if you have a product that you can sell bottoms up, it's a great way to get started. And the reason is, is because it's actually very subversive to the incumbent's stranglehold on an account, 
right? I mean, if you're a pipsqueak startup of 40 people, it doesn't matter how cool your product is. If you have your salesperson there having the, you know, conversation with the, uh, the procurement office, you know, next to an incumbent who has hundreds of millions of dollars of leverage in the account, you're probably not going to win. But if you can build a product that's so much better than their product that, you know, developers and bottoms up adopt it, there's nothing they can do to respond to it. Like the salesperson can't say anything against a cool product that a developer is using, right? And their product teams almost certainly can't make something like, you know, as flexible and as cool. I mean, that's what most technical founders are really good at, is just making the coolest new popular product. I mean, they're almost like Shaolin monks that have been studying that for 10 years. That's like kind of the only thing they're really good at, right? Like they come out of school, you're really passionate about a product and a technology. So it's very subversive from that standpoint. So I would recommend, you know, if you have a product that you can do bottoms up, you do that to start off with. However, at some point in time, enterprise sales tends to follow this traditional Pareto distribution where, you know, 20% of the customers have about 80% of the dollars or generate about 80% of the dollars. And to get access to those dollars, you normally have to actually have direct sales and go through a procurement office and so forth. And we've seen this with a number of examples. You see this with companies like GitHub or whatever, where they start bottom-ups phenomenon and then they take sales very seriously. I would say Slack is another example of that. And so then you do want to shift to a more professional sales motion where you are going head-to-head with these other companies, but hopefully by then you're already a name brand. You already have account control and account penetration. You're already a known quantity. So you're doing it from a base that's also, again, one that's very subversive to the incumbents because, again, they, they just can't be as cool <laughs> as you from a branding standpoint. And it's still a fight to do it. And so there are very two very different motions. And sometimes you can only do them in isolation. But my recommendation is rather than doing that is to do both at the same time you know, one following the, the bottoms up and then the, the, the top down. Now, if you're stuck, I mean, your original question is how do these two differ? They actually differ. Like one is very much marketing led and inside sales led and the other one's actually direct sales, like hire an account rep going forward. I just wanted to take that opportunity to make the point. The marketing that, one being the bigger solution. So if you're doing bottoms up, like you're mentioning, like the early days of, you know, GitHub or Slack or Kong or a lot of open source projects, I mean, you know, the the growth engine, the adoption engine is much more marketing led than sales led, right? The product markets itself, you know, you do meetups, you do hackathons, you build open source community or SaaS community, you use the product to um, create network effects and virality, you may use Google AdWords, you know, you may have inside sales reps, you know, calling people to use it and so forth. But like, because you're not collecting a lot of money per individual user using it, you can't spend a lot of money on sales. So it's, these are market driven approaches. So that's very much the go to market for bottoms up. It's market driven, marketing driven. Sales, on the other hand, is you have a very complicated product that if you did put it on a website, people would just look at it funny, um, which is a lot of infrastructure products because they're so complicated. Like they don't sell themselves. They're not like self-explanatory. They're not cool. Then you have to do direct sales where you pay somebody to sell it. And those people at market rate for someone that can sell infrastructure software is expensive. Like OTE on target earnings, that's like their base plus their variable comp is 300K plus, often more. So you have to be able to sell it for a lot of money in order to recoup that cost. So they're very different go-to-market models, like the Mesosphere current direct sale go-to-market model and something that's more bottoms up, say Airtable, which would be more bottoms up. But rather than have that be the dichotomy, like you have to do one or the other, I would say like more and more, if you can, let's start with the first one and then let's move to the second one. In that answer, you gave examples of Slack. You gave an example of Kong. Kong is a software company based on open source software. Slack is not based on open source software. But both of these are arguably 
bottoms up type of companies because slack starts with just some people at the company install it and they start using it and then all of a sudden it's it's very popular throughout the company might be the same thing with kong some developers start using kong as open source software and then eventually realize okay we have this everywhere in our organization and we need to buy the enterprise version of it so can you look at these two types of companies the bottoms up closed source company and the bottoms up open source company as basically in the same bucket or is there something about open an open source software as a bottoms up type of lead gen that makes it an open source company markedly different than a company like Slack? I think this is one of the questions. You know, I'm more and more of the opinion people over rotate on open source for the sake of open source. And what I mean by that is the real disruption to me that's going on is this bottoms up adoption and products selling themselves and people consuming things as a service rather than you know buying things perpetually. And I think that can come in a lot of forms. It can come in SaaS, like the case for Slack, where it's like, you know, a vertical service. It can come strictly as open source. Like, I mean, Kong is actually not a good example because they do have a service offering as well. But like, let's say there's a company that like only does an open source offering and then they can come in combinations of them. Like think Databricks, right? Where there is Spark, which is a large open source component. But then there's also, you know, like a very large online piece that is, that's a SaaS piece that's got a non-open source components. I mean, I think that's something that's actually quite difficult in offering an online service, which is how most people want to consume things these days. It's not just the code that does the basic thing that you want to do. It's not just like Elasticsearch, right? It is all of the code to do the operations of running a multi-tenant online service and doing all of that. I mean, like that's easily just as complex to me. And that stuff is almost never open source. And if it was, it's not clear how useful it was because it's normally tuned to one operation. And so I would say, you know, whether it's SaaS alone, whether it's a combination of open source and SaaS, or it's open source alone, all of those are viable approaches to doing this. But the big disruption and the big thing that they're enabling is allowing products to speak for themselves, allowing customers to get familiar with the product themselves without kind of like top-down pressure, allowing them to integrate them, procurement that way, and then growing organically that way, rather than having to fight basically a direct sales with an incumbent. That's to me the big disruption. I think GitHub's a great example. Listen, you know, Git is open source. It was written by Linus Torvalds. It was part of Linux. It had nothing to do with GitHub. <laughs> You know, but it's open source and it drafted away. If GitHub is an online service, which people can use for free, so there's a freemium component to it, it's fantastic. It piggybacks on an open source component, which is great, but that's not, you know, if you actually look at all the code that goes into GitHub, I mean, how much of that's open source? Maybe a lot, but how much of that's actually developed by GitHub? I mean, there's a sufficient amount that you want to pay for the closed source offering. Right. So what I would recommend to anybody looking at this, I'll say, okay, if you want to build something, some things that you build, people can only appreciate it if it's open source and they can see the source because they're integrating to that code. That's fine. Then you open source that. Others, it doesn't really matter if it's open source or not because that's not the use case. It's not a development use case. Think Airtable, think Slack. I mean, these are applications that you want to use. But no matter what, I would recommend offering something as a service. So if I'm the creator of Elastic, I can open source Elastic, but I still want to do Elastic as a service. And once you offer something as a service, I think this discussion of open source kind of goes away because it's so complex to develop the operations for one of these SaaS services. And even if you did open source it, like it's so tailored to that one organizational operation, it doesn't really matter. And that's why you don't see people ask questions for SaaS 
services nearly as much as you do if like you're shipping closed source software. So that to me is kind of my line of thinking. It's like it should be SaaS. If people are integrating the code, it should be open source, but you should allow kind of cheap or free adoption so people can understand the product and can sell themselves. So if I'm selling InVision and it's a design tool and it has a freemium offering, there's not much difference between that and having an open source version of Kong as lead gen for my enterprise software. Yeah, I would say, you know, the reason that something like Kong has to be open source is really is developer tooling, right? I mean, it's part of a lot, it's often part of a larger application. It's front ending the APIs. And so actually having access to the source code is an advantage to whoever's using it. If you've got a product that's for a designer and, you know, they're not a developer, not an integrating a product thing, I think just giving them access to products that they understand that they can use it and so forth is very similar. I mean, I think one of the things that we've learned from open source is like just because it's open doesn't mean that you don't want to pay for it and have someone stand beside behind it and work on it and so forth. I mean, this is just like inherent, implicit in the complexity of code. So whether you're giving away something for free or you're giving the open source for free, in both cases, there's so much value that the company can still add to it. So then there's just the decision is, is like, okay, <laughs> what should the product look like? And so it's almost a product design discussion. If the user wants code, you give them code. If the user doesn't care about code, you don't. But to me, there's just nothing magic about open source. You just one component of product thinking it's not a rule does that make sense like yeah yeah well i think i agree and i think there's almost at the open source level the the products that do better tend to have a design ethos around their repo and around their onboarding process and then that comes down to more of a marketing decision and it's like how am i marketing this open source product to the actual developers that are using it. But again, I I think it's, I'm increasingly convinced by the whole, it's kind of just like a freemium kind of thing. Just so you see how I view this as an investor, which may highlight it a little bit, which is if someone comes in, a founder and says, you know, I've got this project and it's 100% open source, 100% open source. Um, and it's always going to be open source. Like that honestly doesn't sway me one way to the other. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't scare me at all. Right. Like I understand how complex it is to integrate you know, open source and to maintain it and to put features and whatever. Like, I just think it's impractical. Like if they're solving a real need to think that like, I mean, unless it's super mature in a super mature space, say something like NGINX, like, but if this is something that's new and it's evolving or whatever, like it's impossible. I don't think it's practical to assume people are just going to take the open source and they're going to be fine with it, right? They're going to want a company behind it. So it doesn't scare me away if they say that. I may, I may wonder like, okay, like, listen, you're open sourcing your, you know, some application for, for farmers. Like, I don't, you know, like, I don't think they, they care if it's open source or not. Like you, you can do it if you want. I mean, so to me, it's not necessarily a strong positive or negative in of itself by its open source. But if I look at the context, then I start having more opinions on these things. But I would like to reiterate the the point before, I think the world wants to consume things as a service, whether it's on-prem or off-prem, that's a different thing. Like you can still have a service on-prem, right? That's just where geographically you are, but how you consume it and who handles the updates and who handles the operations, right? That's to me what cloud is, right? right? And doing that requires a team full-time, all the code to run those operations. It's very deployment specific. And those are, are the things that I think actually create the value these days, not whether something's open source or closed source. And so open source all you want. I mean, we're like, from an investor standpoint, that's fine. But I just think that's not the higher order bit anymore. The higher order bit is how you're delivering it. Several companies with a core technology that is open source have IPO'd recently. You have Mongo, Elastic, Pivotal, arguably. What lessons can the open core startups that are in their early days 
What can they take away from the stories that have played out all the way to IPO? So my big learning in all of this, especially if you look at those examples, is, you know, especially if you're selling infrastructure, you're selling a piece normally to a, a larger system, right? Whether it's a database or it's a PaaS or it's a search component or it's a data, you know, whatever it is. And in most infrastructure components, the interface is so sufficiently thick and the system is so sufficiently complex that there's a ton of work to do to take the open source and to make it work within that broader system. And that's the value these companies end up providing is the arbitration between their open source component and the larger system it comes into. And that can look in a number of ways. It can be closed source components, which I'm increasingly believing like, fine, do it if you want, but like, or it's because they provide the help and the services around that. Now, services have traditionally been this kind of dirty word where like, oh, if you've got a deployment, if you have to like have people on site helping with the integration and so forth, that's a bad thing because margins are bad. But the reality is, is that people pay a lot for software margins is is not just impacted by who you send out. It's how much you can charge for things. You can build these beautiful businesses where you are helping people integrate these open source components into these larger systems. And, you know, very few organizations want to do that themselves because A, they already probably have a negative unemployment rate. The technology's changed too quickly and they don't have access to the code base to do it anyways. And so if I were starting an open source company today and doing some core technology, the you know, I would view how these companies did it was you build something that's very compelling, that's very useful. You engage with top end customers, especially in these cases, to integrate it into their um, systems. And you don't be shy about actually, you know, having bodies do that integration work and charging for it and just make sure that you charge enough to cover the cost. How do you avoid that strategy degrading into an endless chasm? The endless chasm. <laughs> so I think the danger of that strategy is so the optimal approach to that strategy, in my opinion, is that on a per customer basis, you can do integration work, but you're not doing core engineering work. And by core engineering is you're actually fundamentally altering the product per customer in a way that impacts every other customer. And then you've got multiple products and multiple code bases and, you know, et cetera. Like that to me is the failure mode there. If you're doing just basic integration work where the core product stays what it is, but, you know, it's kind of at a higher it's a higher level, more scripting, maybe writing new tooling around it and so forth. I think you know, while traditionally it's not viewed as great, I think that's actually fine, assuming that you can you can pull in enough money. And if you look at a lot of these companies, by the way, that that have, that are open source companies that have been successful, you see that's, that a lot of what they do is just providing support <laughs> and providing these integration services. And so the endless chasm to me, it's just a term that I, I came up with when, you know, the, the classic crossing the chasm model, which is a fantastic model. So it's a fantastic model, but you know, it's been around for a while, says that technology adoption um, follows a curve. And that curve says early on, you've got, you know, innovators that will kind of, you know, look at anything because it's cool. And like, they're really excited about it and they'll do it. And you can always sell to those guys and they'll kind of try anything just because technology. And then you go to basically the early, um, you go from like the innovators to the early adopters. And the early adopters also like, they'll try things because they're cool. They're maybe like a less experimental, less crazy, but maybe more plugged into the business than the experimenters. And then you've got what's called the chasm. And the chasm... Uh, is the difference between the market treating what you have as a foreign object to a known object, right? And the way that you build your company depends on how the market treats your technology, right? And so the hope for a company is that you're following it like a classic technology adoption bell curve where at some point the market matures to the point that it's a known object, 
And now, you know, it's much easier to sell that. It's much easier to scale your sales force. Like the discussion changes to more one of like kind of benefits of yours versus somebody else's versus like you, you need this versus you don't need this, right? Like by the time it's matured, people know that they need it, you know, and so forth. And so that's kind of been the hope and the guidance to build a company. The problem is I, I found now that the market is so dynamic and technology changes so quickly and buyers so often can't even keep up with the trends that it's not clear that these technology adoption cycles play out like they used to play out. I mean, you could, you know, introduce a great new technology. You're just entering the quote unquote chasm and then the landscape changes. And now all of a sudden, like you've got to like go and start all over somewhere else. And so Many companies I see, it feels like they're in this endless chasm where the market is shifting so rapidly, the competitive environment is shifting so rapidly that it's just not, while the model may hold, it's just not useful to them. It's not useful to say, here's what it should look like if that's never how it actually looks because <laughs> things are changing so often. And so I think if you believe that things are different now than they were before and that model isn't as useful in these environments, if you believe that, I think it's worth thinking about, okay, what can you do as a company in order to navigate that? And I think there are many things you can do. I think one of them is one of the implications of, of that is the customers are confused. And so if you can be basically the buffer between the customer and the changing technologies, you're adding value that way. And so now you're the one that's sinking the dynamism of the technology adoption market. So you basically can go and say, hey, listen, you know, I got you. <laughs> like, you don't have to worry so much about the technology adoption curve. I'll worry about that. But then you are in a more of a consultative phase and you're the one that has to be able to adopt and sh to the, the shifting technology ch changes. I also think like, Things like how incumbents, we touched touch upon this early on, like how incumbents respond is much different than it was before. I mean, it was funny. I was having this online debate with um, Jeffrey Moore, who is the creator of, of the Chasm model, Crossing the Chasms, and tremendous work. We actually had him come in and speak with us at VMware. I'm a huge fan of his work. But under the model, and he says this verbatim, he's like, listen, incumbents can't compete with startups in, in early areas because of in pre-chasm areas, in category creation areas. Like incumbents won't compete with you because A, they can't execute at small scales uh, and B, they don't want to. Like nobody cares about a $50 million market if you're the size of Amazon. But unfortunately, today that isn't true anymore. Like you and I were talked about, if Amazon sees you do something, even if it's a small market, it's not very, and it's open source, it's not very hard for them to put something up that can potentially compete with you. So I think it's worth a startup acknowledging that can happen and then to protect against it, which I absolutely think you can. I just think it requires a different different thinking than the traditional thinking around technology adoption curves. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that there is more and more software to be adopted. And if you're running a large bank, it's hard to figure out how to even consume that software, even though you know you want to. And so it makes sense for these companies who are in a quote-unquote endless chasm to look more and more like consultancies because they want to bring on more and more service integrators to help the bank consume their software. Perfect. And this gives me a good opportunity to point out to like some like second order trends we can look at that kind of validate this opinion. So in some areas of infrastructure, the amount of dollars spent on services is twice or three times the amount of dollars spent on actual product. 
So if you just want to know where the bulk of the dollars are going. A lot of them are actually going in services. I think like, for example, the telco service dollar spend alone is $80 billion. In my line of work, there aren't a lot of $80 billion markets out there. And if you look at the companies that are servicing these, they're, I mean, they're fine at what they're doing, but they're not the crack teams, right? I mean, think, you know, Capgemini, Data, Infosys. I mean, they're all, they're all, they're all great companies, but, you know, they're generalists. And, you know, they solve lots of problems for lots of companies, but they're not particularly experts in cloud native or Kafka or databases or the most recent technology that comes up. They tend to be experts in much older technology, like the long tail of traditional technologies. So where do we stand right now? Let me let me just from a macro level pencil out the situation. You've got technology that's changing faster than you know we've ever seen you've got a negative unemployment rate in a lot of these areas it's really difficult to get talent and then you know if you did you'd probably be training the people full-time anyways and then you've got all of the dollars as a result many of the dollars a large bulk of the dollars going to like helping people do the integration all of this heavy work but the the companies that do that they their dna has come from doing kind of much more traditional like legacy type deployment. So it seems to me that there's this very nice spot for a company, if you have a new technology, to both be your own integrator and provide that. And I think the trick is to maintain internal discipline so that you keep your product your product and you know what dollars go for integrating your product. So over time, as that matures, you can move that out into the partner ecosystem to do that services work. And then you just focus on your product stuff over time. But that only works once you know, you hit maturity and, and if you hit maturity. Some questions about other markets. There are a number of second layer cloud providers. Uh, so I've talked to some companies recently like Spotinst or Zite or Heroku. How do the margin profiles of second layer clouds compare to those of base level clouds like AWS? I do think that you're asking the right meta question. And the right meta question is, is this a winner take all market? Like, is there enough scale level moat? Is there enough of a scale level moat because you have visibility and because you've got the economies of scale that you end up becoming the next generation telcos? So what pretty much any economist will tell you is that if you have an economic system where the incremental cost of adding another user converges on zero, this is absolutely the case with telcos, right? Then you'll end up in a monopoly situation. That's just basic economics. There's nothing to do with technology, right? If the incremental cost of adding that additional user converges on zero, you tend to have monopoly situations. And then the question is, is that the case for, for these large clouds? Now, it seems to be that clouds can actually differentiate. By the way, that service is a commodity service, right? That's something that anybody can offer that service. It seems like the, the clouds can differentiate and add value. I mean, the workloads that run on Azure actually tend to be quite different than those that run on Amazon. Or DigitalOcean. So we're, we're investors in DigitalOcean. Also, you know, tends to be much more developer focused, different types of workloads. And so I think actually you may end up in a situation where you can maintain margins through differentiation and through fragmentation of the, not the customer base, but the use case base. You know, it's interesting. We used to sell in the multi-cloud environments all the time, but multi-cloud didn't mean the same workload went between clouds, which I think is one of the biggest misunderstandings in the planet, right? Like, just because someone is multi-cloud doesn't mean that they can actually arbitrate clouds. It just means that they use multiple clouds for the use case that's best suited right. for it. And if if you maintain that, I mean, this is a this is a trillion dollar market. It's all of IT that's going after. Yeah. Then you can think that actually there will be a fragmentation. There will be differentiation. If that's the case, you will be able to maintain margin. But it's early to say that for a fact. You could also go back to the telco gaze and say, actually, everybody's going to offer 
for the same thing. The incremental cost of adding a user is going to converge on zero. Therefore, the largest one will win. And right now, that looks like that would be Amazon. Why hasn't there been a company that does this arbitrage between different cloud providers? Well, so many have tried. Yeah. And I've been very close to a number that have tried. And here's my view. My view is because it's not really solving a customer pain point. And if that's your primary value, I don't think you can build a successful company. Now, if it's a secondary value, it's great, but I don't think that you can sell on that alone. So how do you save money on Amazon? The best way to save money on Amazon is you get big enough that you can get an account rep and then you can negotiate it. <laughs> so like you just have a lot. Another one is you can do things like right sizing, like companies like Spotinst. I mean, what they do is they're just got very good predictive models on pricing. You've got dynamic pricing and they'll do, they'll kind of arbitrage that for a single cloud, right? But it's not clear to me. And it's, I, I just think like precedence has now shown us that there just isn't enough value. And I don't even think there's the like enough like customer willingness to try and run two different clouds, two different operation operating models like that are optimized for two different things just for price differentiation, especially as these prices are like, you know, toughly competitive anyways and converging on the same pricing model. And so I remember in 2007 when there were companies popping up that were going to be like the hypervisor for clouds and like the meta cloud later and like you can run the same workload on all of them. It never played out. Different workloads go to different clouds. I would, for the most part, the majority of workloads, I would, I would expect that to continue to be the pace. Now, maybe there'd be some, you know, like tail of workloads that don't that are going to actually be hopping between them. Um, but I think pricing follows an entirely different trajectory. And I think you'd you know, save yourself a lot more money by negotiating with Amazon directly and or using something like Spotinst or, or any of these companies that actually do good predictive models on pricing. Question about the API economy. My sense is that companies get started and they're doing something and whatever they're doing, they'll look for APIs to solve problems within that company. So you start Uber and then you say, okay, well, I need to solve the background check problem. You find a checker. I need to solve SMS. I find Twilio. There seems to be less analysis of the API economy when companies are in the ideation phase. But it seems like you could just go on to Rapid API or some other API aggregation service and look through APIs and find ideas to start businesses, API mashups. Why hasn't that been a big trend? Is there something deficient in the API economy today? Have we not hit a world where you can just stitch together APIs and build a business? Well, I think we're there now. So I think the reason we weren't there 10 years ago is I, I just believe the market wasn't large enough. So I, listen, the people listening to this may groan when I say this because it's such a hackneyed thing, but I just have to, I just, I actually just believe it to be true. So here's the hackneyed expression, which is, you know, as markets get larger, the granularity for what you can create a business gets higher, right? And so like, again, the, the most hackneyed like story ever, but it's worth saying is Ford early on when the market for cars was a few hundred cars, they had to do every aspect of production, right? They had to like, I mean, they had, they literally have like the Rouge River complex for Ford, you know, they would take in water and rubber and coal and like iron ore and out would come cars. They'd have to do every aspect of that. And if you compare that to now the multi-trillion dollar car market today, you know, you've got, you know, third, fourth tier suppliers that like supplier nuts and bolts and screws and aftermarket cameras. And each one of those independent components are, are independent companies potentially, right? So compute, we've seen a number of these also expansions. Originally, the only way you can sell the computer system, like let's say, you know, you were like thinking machines or your IBM way back when, or you were a deck is like, you literally had to like, you know, you're responsible 
for the chips, the board, the sheet metal around it, all the software on it and all the applications on it. You come you know, a little further to like the PC era and then like, okay, software was decoupled from hardware, but you still like, you know, the OS and the OS provider did most of things. You come up a little, you know, forward, then independent applications became independent companies, right? Like ERP got decomposed into like CRM and databases. And so now I think we're at the stage where the, the, an independent application is being delaminated. Like the marks have become so large that you can take an independent application and you can pull out independent functions and those functions can be entire companies, right? If that function is sufficiently complex and, and, you know, and has commonality between applications, there's no reason somebody can't do that. You know, I've been in the Bay Area for 20 years. I've been driving up 101 and back you know, for those 20 years. And like what's on the billboards is often what's on the mind of people, right? And it is, right? And I remember, you know, in like the early 2000s, it was like pet.com and Yahoo and it was like like dot-com stuff. And then I remember a little bit later on, it was like a lot of SMB stuff, kind of Barracuda and this and that. And a little later on, it was like all the social networking stuff. Remember that? I was like, you know, Friendster, this and that. And a little later on, it was like all the mobile stuff. You know, now if you go, like you've got uh, AI, IoT, but you often have these like developer uh, companies on the billboards, right? It's PubNub, it's Braintree, it's it's Twilio, you know, and like I remember the Twilio was like, ask your developer, right, for API companies. So I just think the market has expanded to the point, it's large enough now that you can build a company that's just services and API. And if you look at like, you know, like Rapid API sit on the board, I'm an investor Rapid API. I mean, like they have like nearly 10,000 APIs that do everything from sending SMS messages to hardcore AI to like making your text look like Yoda said it, right? I mean, like there's so much out there now. So I do think we're in an era that you can build an application and a lot of the hard parts are available via APIs. And I mean, I heard a statistic and like, so I just want to be very clear. I don't, I don't recall exactly the number, but I believe it was something like on average, if you download app from the mobile app store, it'll use 16 external APIs, right? Whether that's SendGrid, whether that's Google for identity, whether that's Twilio, right? And so that's a lot. And I think that number is just going to increase. No, listen, we should double check that number, but like it, it, it's on the order of. Sure. Your philosophy around company building emphasizes survivalism. You like markets where a survivalist founder can wait for the market to evolve into their vision. Why is survivalism a useful trait for a founder? It's a great question. It's one of the two. Actually, I actually shamelessly stole this from Chris Dixon, but like when he said it, it rang so true. I think the thing is either like die quickly or survive, uh, but like, but actually focus on survival, I think is probably a better way of saying it. But, but having gone through what I went through, like I, I really empathize with those on the survival side. So Chris Dixon said this very well. He's like, listen, if you look at a lot of really hard spaces, the ones that made it out of the other end are the ones that just simply survived and waited for the market to take off, right? I mean, like for example, in cryptocurrencies alone, there were long periods of things not really working out and people got frustrated and they left or they you know ended up spending too much money and having to shut down. But the ones that were able to survive when you had the upswing, did the upswing with it. You know, you could argue this is going on in the drone market right now, right? Some markets are very hard. They take a long time to take a long time to figure out. And so it's much more important that you're ready there for the inflection of the market than to somehow think that you can create the market because creating markets is incredibly hard. And so in my case, listen, I started the company in 2007 where literally like a, a viable business model was like you're a smart Stanford PhD. Like that was my, that was my pitch to investors, <laughs> you know? And then a year later, like the world ended, man, it was 2008. Like it was the worst economic time since the great depression and you couldn't raise any money, man. We stayed 12 people for years 
And I looked around and like, we had a lot of potential competitors at the time and every one of them died. (laughs) I would say a large portion of our successes, we just survived that like really meager, crazy downtime. And then we were able to draft on the upswing where people become more optimistic and they try new technologies and budgets do come up. And I just think, you know, so I just do think that, you know, for hard markets, it's the right approach, but then you don't want to become um, a victim to your own strategy. When it's time to take off, you have to take off too. And that's hard if you spent years of belt tightening and like, you know, an aesthetic lifestyle of, you know, Ikea tables and $4 lunches and paying yourself minimum wage like I did for years. <laughs> like then to turn that on and like to actually like invest in the company and burn a lot of cash is hard. So anyways, I just, I just didn't want to be very categorical and I wanted to put context on that, but I do think it's something for like, if founders are frustrated and things are hard, I think like it's good to really belt tighten until the market takes off. It's very hard to create a market yourself. Martin Casado, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Wow.